You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. So I hope if you were with us last week, at least you had the opportunity to maybe reflect a little bit more about the role that technology plays in our lives, and all our lives. Um, I found this joke yesterday, even though it's not... It was, it's an old joke. It's by David Foster Wallace, and he, it goes like this. He said, there's these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish along the way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on a little bit, and then eventually one looks over and says, what the heck is water? Well, the point of the joke is there's things that are all around us, things that are so habitual in our lives, sometimes are the hardest ones to be aware of, to reflect upon. And I think technology is that way. Um, Last weekend, I went to New York City, actually, and I was reflecting all along the journey, all the way technology informed my trip, whether the 900 miles in a plane, or going to the 86th floor of the Empire State Building, or using a smartphone to, to to call a taxi or to navigate through a museum. Once you see technology, it is everywhere. It is inescapable in our modern life. And so this calls out for theological reflection. If you think about the acceleration of technology and how different we live than the whole history of the church up until, say, 1800, 1900s, this calls out for some sort of theological reflection. So how can we understand technology through a Christian lens? And so I argued last week that technology is a good gift that reflects us being made in the image of God. And so I think this helps explain why we can embrace some medical technologies that sometimes Christians can a little bit be wary of. For example, there's some Christian groups like Christian scientists who often refuse many modern medical treatments. And the way they see it is why go with modern man or humanity's treatment? Why go with human? Why not go with God? Why not just trust God for healing? Why not trust God that will see you through your illness or your disease? But I think if you have a strong theology that recognizes the goodness of technology you can see the whole way of framing it is not helpful. It's not like we have to say either technology or God, but we can actually say technology is a gift from God. So we can use technology when we get ill, when we're in the hospital, and thank God when we when the medicine works. So there's another joke, and I promise this is the last joke, but uh, there was a... Uh, so the joke goes, there's a guy who was in his house and a flood comes. And he goes to his roof to wait to be rescued. And along comes a boat. And he said, the boat says, you know, the water's rising. You need to come with us. And he says, no thanks. I prayed to God. God's going to rescue me. So it goes on. The water keeps rising. And along comes another boat. It says, you really need to get in this boat. The water is rising. And he says, no thanks. I've prayed to God. God will rescue me from, uh, f- from this. It says, okay. 
Then the third and final time the boat comes by, it says, you really need to get, this is the last time you need to come with us. He says, no thanks, God will rescue me. So as you imagine, the flood keeps rising, he dies, he goes to heaven, and he goes to God and says, God, I prayed, I had faith, I, I thought you would save me and you didn't save me. Why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent three boats to you, what else do you want me to do? Right, so the, the lesson from that is that God doesn't always have to have a miraculous throwing down something, a net from heaven to rescue you. God can work through normal mechanisms to bring about God's providential ends. And so God can work through medicine just as much as God can work a miracle when we're in the hospital. But this doesn't mean that all technology is to be used uncritically. <clears throat> technology is not an end in itself. It is a tool that we use to reach a fallen world. And because, as I argued last week, we've been given dominion over, this, over creation, we have, we have a standard by which we will be judged. God will pass judgment on the way that we use our technology. Have we used it wisely? Have we spread the gospel? Have we loved our neighbor as ourselves? Or have we used our technology only to amuse and enrich ourselves at the expense of others? I think technology will, must always be evaluated in light of our mission that God has given us here on this earth. So whenever we use technology, use it for the glory of God. So tonight, I'm going to talk about the curses of technology, or perhaps you might say the fallenness of technology or the dangers of technology. I think as Christians, we recognize that technology is dangerous partly because it doesn't recognize limits. Oftentimes, the motto is, if it can be done, it will be done. And I think very, in the very near future, closer than we think, will Christians and non-Christians alike will be placed, will be asked to make some decisions about how to uh, use this technology. So my colleague at, at Sanford, Steve Donaldson, has, has these questionnaires that he sometimes gives his classes to help think about this. And so I thought this would be a good kind of exercise to kind of think for yourself where you come down on some of these uh, questions. So if you could assume, just for the sake of argument, that it was totally safe, and you could give a performance-enhancing drug to your children that would increase their test scores at school, would you do it? No side effects, higher test scores, what would be the drawback? What if you could do the same thing with an implant? What if you could put a little computer chip that would increase memory? What if you could make some change in the genetic code to make your IQ a little bit higher. Assuming no risk, assuming that the technology is solid, we can do it with minimal risk, would you do this? Is this ethical for a Christian to do? Or think less about the, the ways in which we modify. Are there certain things that it's okay to modify for? Like, let's say if we could change the DNA in um, uh, in your child in the womb, would it be okay to change it so that, say, you have a son, your son doesn't get bald? Is that okay to do? Could you, I mean, some people would be more okay with changing the DNA to avoid some disease, but could you do it to raise someone's IQ or change hair color or increase speed and athletic ability 
Or what if you could change something in the DNA that makes someone just naturally more extroverted? Would that be something that would be okay for a Christian to do? So these are difficult questions, and if you believe the futurists and where technology is headed, these kind of questions might be coming to us um, within our lifetime. So thinking Christianly about technology, I think there's a natural Christian wariness about technology, a hesitation, because you don't have to look very far in the Bible to find stories where technology goes wrong, with the Tower of Babel being the clearest example of this. So in the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11, the descendants of Noah are depicted as offending God by their technological achievements. So they only have one language, so they're capable of unlimited engineering feats. And so they decide to construct a tower to reach all the way to the heaven. And this is what it's quoted in Genesis. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, right? The name for ourselves is the, is the pride part. So we see in this story, human pride le- leads to technology that oversteps the limits. And it's interesting that God says in the story, because humans can work together because they can understand each other, God is quoted as saying, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them just because they understand each other's language. So the lesson that many Christians take from this, and I think it's a good lesson, is to be skeptical about future technology. That technology itself is to be worried about, and perhaps technology itself will collapse upon itself. And I think we can see that in modern culture, especially in recent times, uh, in the angst and worry, anxiety, that was felt around Y2K. Now, some of you might be a little bit too young to think about Y2K, but it was the time around the year 2000, there was this tremendous worry that programmers in the 1900s had used two digits instead of four digits for talking about a year, right? So when it come to the year 2000, the computer would not be able to tell between 19,000, 2000, or the 2100, and so forth. So I remembered around this time, I was a young seminary student driving around Birmingham a lot because I lived out in, uh, near Moody, c- coming into town. And so I often listened to Christian radio. And it was amazing how many sermons that I listened from Christian radio on Y2K. Talked about the Y2K would spark an economic collapse, that it was part of God's judgment against the United States. Many figures on the, in, on the radio hyped it as a method for God's judgment, warning Christians to be aware. Not only could you buy books about Y2K, but they would often sell you kits so you could survive for a couple weeks when the electricity went out. So in retrospect, it would seem, Christians were too gullible on this technology about seeing where it would go wrong, giving rise to a sort of techno panic. So I think together these two stories, the Tower of Babel, and the Y2K have important lesson. On the one hand, I think there's an important Christian intuition that we need to recognize the limits and the dangers of human technology. But on the other hand, I don't think we should be too gullible to predict and advance where technology can and cannot go. 
I think the future might be more surprising to us than we uh, currently can predict it to be. So I'm going to talk a little bit about technology and how certain people think about how the future will develop. But I think it's important to recognize that before you get to all the futuristic sci-fi scenarios, even right now, technology is changing the way we live our lives. Uh, there was a book that came out like 40 years ago or so called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was a really influential book because it traced the way we moved from a culture that was um, focused on making arguments in print and books and newspapers to one making arguments on TV. And it was really influential because it showed the way the very medium of TV, the way it's presented, changed the message. So after the TV came around, it changed politics. You had to be a, a telegenic candidate in order to be elected. It would be unthinkable for someone in, in wheelchair like uh, Roosevelt in World War II to be elected president because all, the image of TV is so important in getting out your message. So the book made an influential case that we now live in some ways in the age of show business, in the age of television. But you could take that same analysis and you could move it forward to our time. And there's a lot of parallels in the way that technology changes our own life. Especially the phone. There's almost no re relationship um, that we have that is not affected by having a phone. And oftentimes, to be honest, a phone is in some ways a very addictive object. The hit of dopamine in your brain when you get a new message or, or text. We have a hard time being alone with our thoughts because of the way that the phone has so been a part of our lives, become part of our lives. We find ourselves incapable of sitting in a room alone, alone with our thoughts. So I think when you think about the way that technology and, and especially the phone has impacted modern life, I think there are some ways of thinking distinctively Christian about how do we interact even with the phone. So it's very embedded in the Old Testament, the principle of Sabbath rest. And one of the reasons why you rest or in other situations fast is that you're, you're taking a break from uh, work, but also from anxiety in, in the way that God has shown us how to live our lives. And it helps us to remind ourselves who's the master, that technology doesn't master us, but we are the master of technology. So I would argue in some ways, as Christians, even before we get to the futuristic sci-fi scenarios, how we interact with our phone and how we build into our lives downtime from our phone and other technologies is an important part of being a Christian witness in the modern world, that we own our, our technology our technology does not own us. Also, you could think about, for example, uh, how internet and social media has impacted modern culture. It changes the way we relate to each other. So even before the internet, technology had changed the way we live our lives. So we are able to live inside because of air conditioning. We're able to live out away from people we work with because of cars. And so 
in the modern world, it's very easy to live in neighborhoods where we don't know each other. We don't know our neighbors. And so the rise of things like social media actually can be a good thing. It can allow connections. You don't have to be living next door to someone to have a sense of community with them. But it also creates, in our modern culture, groups. We often, because it's very easy for us to associate with people who think exactly like this ourselves, it's easy for us to get grouped together with people who only think like us. So this is why liberals have their TV shows and conservatives have their TV shows and uh, independents have their ways of getting media. We often live in some ways in information bubbles that is created by technology. If someone has a view that you don't like, you could just get them out of your social media feed. And so I would think if years from now, as we analyze the culture in which we live ourselves now, the gridlock in which we find ourselves in politics can be in some ways attributed to the social media and the internet. In some ways, I think it's true that oftentimes people live in different universes in, in the same country and have a difficulty speaking to each other. So I think as Christians who have the biblical mandate to always have a reason and to, to engage other people, this sort of tendency to retreat is not one that's been recommended to us by, or actually commanded to us by Scripture. And there's other ways you can think about the way technology changes. Just like in the Reformation, as I talked about last week, the printing press gave everyone a Bible that they could read for their own. You could have your own interpretation of the Bible. Well, the Internet has made it more possible, so there's all these different interpretations of faith. You don't have to go down to your local church to find the truth about whatever religion you want to find out. You can find it on the Internet. Everyone becomes their own authority on deciding and finding what they want to believe. The way we live with technology is changing the way we interact with those around us in our community, and it changes the way that many people in our culture are expressing their religious beliefs. So... All this to say, as Christians, I think we need to be self-aware of the way that technology changes us. Because if you're not self-aware, then you don't have the ability to say no. So what are some examples of future technology, things that might be coming down the road uh, that we can expect that might raise Christian worries? Um, I should say at the beginning, I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a futurist. I actually, my own uh, area of research is the history of science and Christianity, how they're related to each other. So that's kind of my window into this topic. So there actually might be people here that could talk more about the future and technology. But I can tell you uh, things that I've heard and read uh, report what others are saying about this. So I think that technologies that are coming down the road that will cause Christians the most worries are the ones where we some way change or modify human nature. And so we're all going to have to face the question, when is enhancement, when is changing our bodies morally permissible? When is it okay for a Christian to do that? So there's two different major technologies that this, will, this issue will be raised in. One is biomedical technologies, especially the alternation, the 
changing of our genetic code. In 2013, scientists developed this new technology for editing the genes of living human cells. And so the way it's often explained is that they kind of defined and replaced feature of Microsoft Word. That's kind of what they can do with the genes now. And so you can find, clip out, and replace certain lines of genetic code and do this to embryonic and reproductive cells, which means all future generations might be affected by this change. And so you could add new features to the genetic code, things that we see all around us. We can get, we can get apples that are more crisp. We can change different vegetables and foods we eat to have qualities that we want. We can have plants that are resistant to drought. We can have even thinking about ways of eradicating mosquitoes for all these through genetic alterations. But I think the thing that most Christians worry about is how this applies to humans. So this could be used, this technology can be used for good, I would say, for alleviation of suffering, for, for helping those children who would give rise to disease to help cure them. Things like sickle cell disease or various forms of cancer. But the thing is, the technology that can help eliminate disease can also enhance human persons. And so once we get to that sort of question, we seem like we have the power to manip manipulate the gene pool of human beings in a completely different way. So will some people have a desire to create, in some ways, a super, these humans with super characteristics, where they can sh shop, where parents can shop and select certain things that they want in their children. So this is the questions that we face in terms of the biomedical field. There's also the issues that come down in terms of robotics and artificial intelligence. So there's a famous futurist, uh, Ray Kurzweil, who if you know anything about uh, technology, you probably have heard of him. He has written five bestsellers in the New York Times, and he works uh, at Google on artificial intelligence. And he's famous partly because he's made many correct predictions about where the future will go. So he predicted uh, 10 or 15 years in advance that there'd be a computer that would defeat a chess champion by 1998, and it happened in 1987. He predicted... Uh, in the 1990s that, that by 2010 we'd have PCs that would be able to answer questions by getting information uh, off the internet. So he has some, um, take some predictions that have come true that have made him famous. So he predicts a future in which our technology, our robotics, gets smaller and smaller until it can help enhance human capacities. So we might be able to replace, use um, sophisticated prosthetics to replace diseased organs. Uh, we might be able to use neuroenhancers to insert into the brain to affect deterioration of memory and other cognitive functions. We might be able to have synthetic blood vessels, he's, he predicts. So he argues that by uh, 2040s, 
the non-biological intelligence, by which he means like computers, will be a billion times more capable than biological intelligence, brains, in other words. If you look at the growth curve of information processing and the way it continues to double, not only will it surpass, I think it has surpassed, the capacity of human brain to process information, but it'll get to a point where it can process as much information of all human brains uh, that are currently existing on the planet by some time at the end of the 21st century. So he is predicting a time where non-biological intelligence will be much more capable than our brains. And he's also predicting that in some ways by 2045, there'll be ways to have human brain inter interfaces where we're able to link our brains, our neocortex, to the cloud for information. So he argues, quote, rather than a biological substrate, humans of a future generation will rely upon a machine substrate. So he argues the future will be a one in which we have escaped our biological limitations. We'll have a much longer, less painful and suffering life. And you also will have, he says, robots that will act indistinguishably from humans. So this is a future that seems weird, but of course the, the future that we live in now it would be very weird to someone 100 years ago. And it's interesting to notice that this futurism, often people go by the, word, uh, the name transhumanism, who really advocate for this type of view. There's so much that overlaps with Christian views of the world. In some ways, it seems like a secular alternative to Christianity. So both transhumanists and Christians agree that our finite human bodies are not ideal. We uh, agree that we fall short of human potential, and we have not become all that God intended us to be. But whereas we look for transformation at the end of the age, at the end of the world, transhumanists see transformation in the here and now through technology. Technology has taken the place of God in this view of the world. So this raises obvious worries about the dangers of human pride and where we're going with human technology. So one common criticism you'll hear of this type of movement is that there's a worry about playing God. After our God created humans in Genesis, who are we to alter the genetic code or to add robotic interfaces to our body? The temptation to remake nature is not itself to be faulted, but it's the pride, it's the hubris, it's the same thing that we saw in the Tower of Babel story that leads humans to go beyond natural limits. It's one thing to treat someone who has the disease or repair an injury, but it's quite another thing to use the technologies to help someone become unusually strong or unusually smart or beautiful. So in this kind of critique, there is an assumed natural state for humans in that whenever technology goes over that natural state, then it becomes, um, steps over the limits that God has set for us. But other Christians looking at this have argued back that maybe it's too much to rely upon this natural, non-natural distinction that goes on in this criticism. 
After all, there's a lot of things we do as humans that are not natural, like flying in airplanes or driving a car. And there's a lot of natural things like bacteria and viruses and mosquitoes that we are very happy to get rid of. So perhaps when you push on the natural, non-natural distinction, sometimes you can get fuzzy. After all, for thousands of years, uh, we have been using technology to remake ourselves. For example, vaccines. We, with vaccines, we are putting dead viruses in our body that in some ways upgrade our own immune system. So if computer, and so the argument goes for people on this side, if computer implants trouble us because they might put a library of data in, in, for access from our brain, then why do we justify books and library buildings which are also data access technologies to, to enhance our cognitive abilities? So the fundamental question that goes on in this argument back and forth is just how far should human beings take the task of improvement in their own hands? Not just using the moral disciplines of our spiritual life, but technology. How far can we go with technology? To what extent can we accept the world as given to us and we should accept it as the way it is? Or what extent should we hope to improve the world? So for me, the question is less one of is it natural or is it non-natural? For me, the question is, is it used for good or is it used for bad, for evil? So another criticism that... Uh, arguments to go back and forth on these kind of technologies is can this future really leave suffering and sin behind? So if you actually read like the futurist, it seems very optimistic where everybody will be smart and there will be no suffering will be done away with. But has this future scenario really wrestled with sin in the way that Christian theologians would recommend you you take into account? So there's a theologian, Ted Peters, and he argues this way. He says, there's no warrant for thinking that the currently selfish human race will be able to transform itself into an altruistic or benevolent one. There's no warrant for thinking that we human beings with our history of economic injustice and ecologically unhealthy habits are willing or able on our own to eliminate poverty and protect the environment. No amount of increased intelligence will redeem us from what theologians call sin. And so, from a Christian perspective, when sin is something to be, where suffering and sin is something to be done away at the end of time through grace, the worry is, is that these overly optimistic scenarios have not fully taken in the human condition. So we might imagine scenarios where these technologies create deep economic disparity between those who have the technology and those who don't. Between those who can afford to alter the children's uh, cognitive abilities and those who don't, don't. And it also will create scenarios we could imagine where those who have not been altered, who have not cho chosen to go with this technology, are looked at as less than fully human. Is there something about living with our limits 
something about living, living with our finitude that makes life worth living. Many Christians have argued that there's something about the limits of human nature that helps us appreciate uh, the gifts of God. So that's one side of the argument. And I think all Christians would argue, no doubt, that sin is not taken seriously as, as seriously as it should in these future scenarios. But people on the other side would say, no matter how much sin enters the picture, we're still made in the image of God, even if we're tarnished in some way. And so even our work in technology, we could still be seen as partnering with God in bringing about something new in creation. So again, the fundamental question becomes, how much do we leave to God? How much is it okay for us to do? Do we simply sit back and let God sort everything out? Or as God has given us a responsibility, an authority, a power to sort some things out for ourselves and even on God's behalf. So to be honest, I wish I could answer all these questions and give you the answer for all these. I wish I could give you, in some ways, you know, the magic bullet, the, the thing that would solve all these problems. But it's, you, I don't think that's realistic. For one reason, we don't really know where the technology goes. I mean, you can imagine scenarios where AI succeeds far beyond the best Steven Spielberg movie, right? Or you could see scenarios in which all these extravagant promises of technology fall flat that we don't, won't live in a scenario where we're uploading our minds to the matrix or something like that. So until we actually know the concrete scenario on the ground, it's often hard to speculate about what's too far and what's not far or what's permitted from a Christian perspective. And moreover, Christians disagree. Christians will disagree about where we come down. And so to give the, the Christian answer, I think, doesn't grapple enough with the diversity of Christians thinking and approaching this issue from different perspectives. But I would argue, if we're going to have a theology of technology, whatever the future holds, whatever future developments come about, I would say keep these three things in mind. There's three kind of doctrines to hold as we think about the future. First one is what I argued last week. Technology is a gift of God and that there is some goodness still left in creation. So when we read in Genesis about God taking a world that's formless and void and bringing about order and disorder, we see the same thing in our own lives. We use our intellect to bring about creative things. We, as stewards of creation, we have a mandate to rule and care for creation and to use technology at that end. So I would say no matter what technology comes, we recognize there's a goodness to technology. There can be a, a potential goodness. But the second thing to keep in mind, as Ted Peters, the theologian, recommends, is to keep the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the fall, uh, always remember it. Because no matter how good the world, our technology gets, our world is still not the world that God intended. The entry of sin into the world will ensure that the world will never fully be the world that God intended at the beginning, not in this present evil age. 
So it would be wrong for Christians to be overly optimistic about sin and suffering to be done away with. But then the last thing to remember is the doctrine of redemption, that we are in a creation that still groans because waiting in eager expectation for God to be revealed. And so as Christians, as we are using technology responsibly, in some ways we are modeling for the rest of humanity what the future kingdom will look like, what, when God recreates the world, what that would look like. And so I think using the idea of redemption, we can use technology responsibly. So remembering the goodness of technology, the fallenness, and the, the doctrine of redemption Having, making sure all three elements are in any response, any theology of technology is important. If at any point we lose one of those three strands, I would argue that our response to technology has somehow lost an important part of the Christian perspective. But beyond this, where the future goes, how we wrestle with these questions, this is something all Christians will have to wrestle with. And so the most important thing I would recommend to you as going forward is to be aware, to be cognizant of the way technology is shaping and continues to shape your life and make sure that you use technology rather than technology using you. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you very much. We have uh, plenty of time for questions. Uh, for Dr. Reeves, I am going to ask that when you ask your question, you start with, hey, Siri, so that we can record that. Compare your answers to Siri's answers sure. just to see how it goes. I hope that goes well. Uh, questions for, uh, for Josh? Ray. Yeah, thanks for, for talking about these things. Um, one of, one of the things that you alluded to was the, how technology is fragmenting us, mm -hmm. like in terms of I ideologies, ideas. And mm -hmm. So we are uh, living in a world now that keeps getting more and more polarized, and you can always find somebody who agrees with you. Mm -hmm. um, I think this, of course, has some impact for the church, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but but formal, first and foremost, like when we try to reach people uh, outside the walls of the church, people who are living in this fragmented uh, world, do, do you have, uh, do you think about like recommendations? How can we, with the, the gospel, it tends to be a unifying message, mm -hmm. right? Paul talks about, I'd love you to think all the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so how do we reach a fragmented society where everybody is right, everybody has their idea? And this is not going away. I, I understand that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I've thought about this some in connection with teaching students at Sanford because I don't feel like it's my role as an educator to tell them how to vote or how to think about little particular political issues. But I do think it's important for me to help them think about how to do politics as a Christian. And one of the ways that, for me, it's important to recognize that the way in which it's very easy to point fingers and yell and throw uh, 
accusations at people that you don't ever really encounter on a daily basis. That, to me, doesn't seem to be a very um, effective or really a very Christian way to do it. Uh, So I encourage my students, even with people that you disagree, the most important thing to do is to make sure that you're able to accurately say what the other side is saying. Right? I mean, this in some ways is like they teach us at seminary marriage counseling, right? You sit down, okay, you speak, or did you hear, can you repeat back what your wife said, right? That's, I mean, if you do that, you're like 90% of the way towards having, um, getting through marriage counseling. So that whole way of engaging other people in a way that's fair, that they recognize fairness, that is a really important thing in a very polarized society, so I would argue that as Christians, there's a way in which we go about politics. It's not about watering down your views, but there is this way that you see in the Gospels, Jesus engaging people that he didn't always agree with that I think is lost sometimes in our own society. So the ways that we as Christians can engage others in a, in a fair way, the more that we accurately portray other views, I think the better audience we'll get for our own views and the way that we engage and think about the world. So, I mean, that's just a couple of things I'd recommend. Great. Another question? Yeah. Oh, great. Make me work. You mentioned Y2K, and we were talking last week about Galileo and the, the church response to Galileo. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to that we can lampoon Christian uh, or the church's cynicism about technology. Mm. But then, on the other hand, you, you mentioned uploading our intelligence to the matrix. Yeah. And in thinking about that as an example, the matrix didn't suddenly happen. It's something that little by little happened. So it seems like uh, asking questions about individual technological advances, about whether or not this individual advance is right, kind of misses the mark of asking bigger picture questions about whether the direction of technology is right. I just wonder, how do we not be gullible, but still question overall direction? Yeah, that's um, that's a. So as you were saying that, I was thinking about, in some ways, the Amish and how they deal with technology. Often, the Amish are not anti-technology. Every technology that comes through, they actually debate, and they say, "Will this help our community or not?" But the default setting is no. So you have to make an argument to get to yes for why we'd use it in our community. So as you were saying that, I think helping ourselves, our families, our churches to think about what are responsible ways that we can use technology that might distinguish us in the world. Uh, I think that would be, there's a lot of, a lot that can be done there, right? So I think one of the ways that we show our distinctiveness in the world oftentimes is what we believe, but it's also got to be what we act and how we act in the world. And I think technology, because it's such a part of everyday life, 
being a distinctive Christian has to come out some way in technology. So um, I don't know if that's, I mean, there seems like there's a lot to go there, but I, I only have kind of initial thoughts about where to go. Are there emerging majority and minority views from Christian ethicists regarding at what point we will cease to be human if we use technology designed to modify our genetic code or natural abilities? Um, I've heard people, maybe it comes like the argument where, if you, I mean, I've heard people make arguments that, you know, if you replace one neuron with a, a silicon, you know, with a computer equivalent or digital equivalent, well, you're still human, but you add another one. Add, uh, what point does a, you know, a, a, if you add a specistan, specistan, at what point becomes a hill, right? It becomes very hazy exactly how do you draw these lines. Unless you have some conception of what the soul is and what if if how a soul explanation which would be the classical christian understanding of how what makes us distinct and unique plays a role in human identity but i think i have not heard anybody ever argue like this is the the point that makes us where you would know for sure that you're not human anymore it's always a it's a, Always a matter of degrees is the way I've heard people argue for it. Great question. Other questions? Yes, Tate, you have a question? Have you seen the movie Wally? Yes. <laughs> Great question, Tate. All right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's watch it. Um, yes, I have uh, eight and ten year old girls. So they were right in the window for Wally. Yeah, so what's your opinion on uh, just the fact of getting so consumed in all this technology that not that we lose our humanity, but we lose our ability to communicate with one another, that we just become so isolated that we just lost, lose that? Yeah, there's something about technology that becomes easy. And I think in some ways the phrase amusing ourselves to death becomes convenient because it's easy to be distracted by games. It's easy to be carried everywhere by a machine to be given food, but have you interacted with somebody? It's, it's the ability to say no to technology is an important part of mastering it. And so I would say, if you're going to be a distinctively Christian and you're going to master technology, not let it master you, being able to say no to technology at whether it's one day a week, not using your phone or in other aspects, is an important part for me, at least in my own experience, part of spiritual disciplines of saying, being able to resist the easy road in terms of helping, you know, spiritual growth and other sorts of things. So that's, for me, has been an important Josh, part. I have a question, and I don't think it's a good question, but I'm going to ask it one way or the other. Uh, and it's more of a, a case study. And I'm going to ask it silly, but I'm actually kind of serious about it. So my um, bugaboo is the space program. Mm -hmm. And that, like, uh, I, I don't know why we do it. It seems to me like a modern-day version of the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet I have friends, non-Christian friends, maybe some Christian friends as well, that uh, said us landing on the moon was, like, the greatest of human achievement, that we conquered the stars, essentially. 
um, that we are, you know, regularly blasting billions of dollars into space to try to conquer Mars when there are people hungry around the world mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, help me think about that. Am I right? Am I wrong? Or And then also follow up, what's your bugaboo as it relates to uh, these types of things? Mm. I'm not sure about the second one. <laughs> so, In terms of uh, the space program, you know, the comparison to Tower of Babel, I would say the difference is, is that the space program was successful. And so in some ways, I think you can celebrate it as part of our being made in the image of God, that whole thing. But having said that, the way in which technology develops is a reflection upon us, right? You have to invest money, you have to invest resources. And so there's always an open question of what type of technology do we want to invest in. And if you look at the 20th century, the technologies that we have most as a nation invested in are actually military technology, right? How to, a lot of the technologies that we think of today, like the internet or uh, GPS, come out of military technology, right? So uh, there is always a question. Technology just, you know, doesn't just spring out of nowhere. It has to be a reflection of what we value and what we care about the world. And so I do think there is a role for a Christian voice I don't know if there can be a distinctive voice, but Christian voices for talking about what is it that we most value in the way that we shape our technology? Because we might want our technology dollars invested here rather than here. I mean, that's a very legitimate question to think about in terms from an ethical perspective. Thank you. talking about Velcro, and I don't trust that either. <laughs> so, hey, uh, I was going to ask you, so, you know, I, I hear you talk about, you know, technology and, you know, some of the arguments, and, yeah. um, you know, I think, like, when we think of technology, like, you know, organ transplant, right, mm -hmm. um, you know, stem cell replacement, all of these types of, you know, medical advances, if we can kind of picture our mind it's going to be good, well, yeah, we're going to be all for it. But then if you look at some of the future stuff, like, you know, uploading things and, mm -hmm. you know, replacing, you know, enhancements, all that type of thing, I think you could argue for good coming out of that as well. So I guess my question would be, other than the Tower of Babel in Scripture, is there something else you can point us toward that would help us think about those types of issues as they come up? I read a number of books for this two presentations, and I didn't come up with a story where another scripture, I thought, yes, this needs to be in here. I mean, part of the issue that makes it so difficult is that we're living 2,000 years after Jesus' time, and so we're encountering technologies and issues that were never encountered by the early church. And so what we're dependent upon is not, this is what Christians have always done, but this is how Christians think about the world. And so it's actually a much more difficult problem because we have to really deep down kind of think about what does it mean to be a distinctively Christian perspective, to have a distinctively Christian perspective on technology. So I think that the biblical, the Bible is really important for shaping the way that we want to use technology. 
but you're not going to find examples where like this is, okay, this will tell us whether we should use stem cells or not, right? So it's, it's shaping the kind of people that we are. Uh, so will we be the kind of people that use technology responsibly? Um, as an educator, I know in education there's kind of two ideas about technology. One is give them as much technology as possible, and the other is limit that technology because they need interaction yeah. with each other. Um, I see that in the future as technology becomes more prevalent in the church, um, that that's going to be the same issue that you've got some that use lots and lots of, a lot, a lot of technology and some that want to do away with some technology to have that interpersonal relationship with people. Mm -hmm. How do you think um, we can balance that as the church as we go forward into um, the future that's coming? So a lot of times, I mean, I just think about my own children. It's, they're 8 and 10. So oftentimes, technology for them is an escape. It's, a, it's something they do just because, uh, you know, it's a Saturday morning and we just want to, you know, veg out after a week of school. And so that's the way I tend to think about technology. So from that perspective, oftentimes, in, in terms of the education, it's, I do think limits are important because they need to be able to interact and we need to have family time and all those sorts of things that you would have limits on. In terms of the church perspective, I think, you know, I think you know, obviously parents are, and educators are going to come down in different areas. I just think the church can help in some ways start the conversation and help as long as we are reflecting upon our technology, as long it's, as we have prayed and intentionally made choices that we think are in line with our values, I mean, that would be, to me, just an important first step. I, just, I think oftentimes the worry that I have and that I've seen others in preparing is that technology, you just, it becomes unreflective. It becomes so part of your life that you don't even, even think about exactly what the limit should be. You know, sure, I have a smartphone, you know, set no limits on use of smartphone or something like that. Well, I think as a Christian, I think there's, there is a time for my own spiritual growth that I need to be alone with my worries and anxieties and, and have an opportunity to pray and have a still small voice come in my head. I think those are important parts of spiritual growth. And so, I don't, I'm hesitant, I hope you, you might see tonight, I'm hesitant to say this is what you as Christians should do going forward, but I do think it's vitally that we as Christians have some sort of theological background, so when we come to this, we're not just flying blindly. So I guess for me, it's just the first step is to be aware and try to think about your values and think about what is it that this technology, what is it? What is the aim for? You know, if I'm giving my child technology for seven, eight hours a day, in some ways I think that's because I've, it's make it easy, I've taken the easy way out, right? I've, I've not wanted to take the hard road of having a relationship and there might be fights and there might be conflict because that's part of being human. So just thinking about our values and trying to reflect upon what it means to be a Christian, um, in some ways I've, look at this as trying to help start that conversation. We're going to close there, Josh. Thank you so much. Let's yeah. give a round of applause for Josh and appreciation for him being here. We're going to spend some time in our groups, and the four questions will be up on the screen. Questions uh, 3, 10, 18, 
and 20. Uh, and then I will close us uh, back together in about 10 minutes. All right, friends, we're going to wrap up our conversations here. I do hope they continue and that we've learned uh, a lot tonight. I found the conversation very enlightening. Uh, we're going to close together uh, with a prayer. So if you wouldn't mind uh, standing with me, and then let's uh, pray together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God of love and mercy, grant us wisdom to live, speak, and do all things for your glory. Amen. I'll see you in two weeks upstairs, and you want to bring a friend to this as we explore grief in the gospel. Have a great night.